The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of James, James chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 of this chapter, and you'll find it in your pew Bible on page 1012. Turn here to read from the Lord's Word, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to this section of God's Word, let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, it's immediately clear to us, even from glancing at this text, that we need help from you this morning, because we don't need uh, more human words. We need a word from your lips, that we might understand what is being taught here, not just understand, but also have the power that we need for it to make a difference in our lives. So come and be a teacher, we ask in Jesus' perfect, mighty, and matchless name. Amen. So last week, you remember, I I gave you some homework. I gave you the tongue assignment, and there were five things that you had to do this week, or more accurately, five things that you weren't to do this week. Number one, all week long, don't complain or grumble about anything. Number two, don't gossip or repeat bad information about anyone. Number three, don't speak a harsh or a judgmental word to anyone. Number four, don't make excuses. Don't defend yourself, shift blame to other people at all. Number five, don't boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did it go this week? Well, yeah, a few thumbs down. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Uh, let me share a few of the favorite responses I received uh, to, this, to this task. Uh, number one, uh, this was, for me, this was less of a tongue assign- assignment, more like a vow of silence. <laughs> <laughs> number two, from a pastor friend of mine, I couldn't possibly tell you his name. Um, he does work here at McLean. Um, <laughs> his, his initials are David Stevenson. <laughs> it was going okay until I played in our church softball league. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you fear I'm gloating, uh, one for me personally, which was at the dinner table when my son pointed out that I actually broke all five in one sentence. (laughs) 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 Oh, the blind bleeding the blind, David. We're in trouble. James 3 is probably the single most significant passage in Scripture when it comes to the tongue when it comes to words, when it comes to language. This section that we read actually breaks quite neatly into five smaller sections. Five smaller sections, and there's really an inexorably logical flow as we move from section to section. So let's work through this text as, as we have it here and see if we can apply the lessons that it has for us. The first section is verses 1 and 2, and it's a very simple point that the tongue is a big deal. The tongue is a big deal. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We live in a, a day and in a culture that's very loose with its language, that really downplays the significance of words. We think that, that talk is cheap, that while sticks and stones may break your bones, names could never hurt you, that just a white lie is not so bad after all. And in contrast to that, our passage says, no, the tongue is a big deal. And the words that you speak and the language that you use is, is hugely significant. It, it applies this to two groups of people in this first section. Uh, first of all, to teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach, we judged with greater strictness. I kid you not, those words are enough to make me want to never preach again. To never preach again. To be silent in the sanctuary. To come before him with nothing on my lips. Why? Because we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, you understand, of course, that this is not referring to that judgment for salvation. You have heard me say a thousand times. You heard John Hutchinson before me say a 10,000 times. And you heard Steve Smallman before that say a 100,000 times that we are not judged for salvation on the basis of our works. We are just judged on the basis of Christ's works. That the only reason anyone will ever inherit salvation, the only reason any of us will ever be saved, the only reason any of us might ever be forgiven is that Christ has done all that was necessary for us to be called his friend. So we're not talking about that eternal judgment. Rather, we're talking about that judgment that comes for our reward in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.10 puts it this way. Paul writes, to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus puts it differently in Luke 12 when he says, to whom much is given, much will be required. 
To much is given, much will be required. And this is why those who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Why? Paul says, because teachers are the ones to whom has been given the stewardship of the mysteries of God. It is to teachers that the scriptures and the gospel has been given that they might take these scriptures and take this gospel and uh, explain it and make it persuasive and compelling to uh, those who do not yet know it. And what gift could you be given that is greater than the gospel? And because it's been given such a profound and significant blessing of grace, we'll be judged in accord with what we have done with that word of grace. So on one hand, you should be very slow to become a teacher. And I would make a broader application, not just to the preacher, but to the Sunday school teacher, to the small group leader, to the council, to anyone who would take the scriptures and apply them to the lives of another. Be slow before you take upon yourself the mysteries of God. On the other hand, though, it's very important for us to realize that this verse is no excuse for not teaching if you've been called to teach. Because you'll be judged not just, if you've been called to teach, you'll be judged not just for the words you said, but for the words you didn't say. So silence is, is no excuse. And so here I find myself this morning between the rock and the hard place, between uh, the words that I say will be measured and judged. So I want to keep silence. But if I keep silent, the words that I didn't say will be measured and judged. And so I don't want to keep silent. And so here I am, wanting to speak, wanting not to speak, having no option but to fall at Jesus' feet <laughs> and say, God, Lord, I need you. I need you this hour. And when I say this hour, I mean the 11 o'clock service at MPC, right? And the 9.15 service. And in fall, the 8.32, Okay. <laughs> a weighty thing. But it's a weighty thing for all of us who teach. And if the Lord is calling you to teach, you dare not resist that call. Instead, fall at his feet with me and seek the grace that we need to be faithful to the calling he has given. So, the tongue is a big deal for teachers, but in case you were feeling relaxed, in case you thought you were getting away with something here, let me inflict some misery on you, because verse 2 says, it's not just teachers uh, for whom the tongue is a big deal. We read, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. When it comes to words, we all stumble. And not is it just we, that we all stumble, we all stumble in many ways that the sins of the tongue are too numerous for us to list, from complaining and grumbling to gossiping, judging, excusing, blame-shifting, exaggerating, boasting, nagging, lying, misleading. We could go on and on and on. There is no limit to the way in which we can use our tongues to sin. And everyone struggles with this. We read, if you don't struggle with this, you'd be a perfect man, a perfect man or a perfect woman. Is anyone comfortable with that claim this morning? Is anyone bold to say, yes, next week, let's print every word I said this month on the back of the worship guide, because I've got this thing down. Of course not. The tongue is a big issue for us all. The tongue is a big issue for every single one of us. The tongue is a big deal. But 
Why more specifically is it such a big deal? This takes us to sections 2 and 3. Let's look at it together. We see first of all in verses 3 and 4 that the tongue is such a big deal because the tongue has tremendous power for good. The tongue has tremendous power for, for good. The tongue is disproportionately influential in this way. We get two illustrations of this reality. First, in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. He's saying, imagine, this, this, the, the, uh, imagine a horse, this grand, strong, powerful creature weighing well over a thousand pounds, and it can be controlled and manipulated and put to good use by a small piece of metal that will slide between the teeth. And so this powerful, unruly creature can be put to good use with something that is disproportionately influential. Then, verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Thinking of this large ship flowing upon the billowing seas, and it is controlled not by a big thing, but by a small thing. I called one of our Navy men this week and said, hey, teach me about ships and rudders. Okay? I know nothing about this. Give me some information. And he told me to consider uh, the aircraft carrier because he said, toys don't come any bigger than this. Okay? <laughs> so um, in terms of height, an aircraft carrier is 244 feet from the bottom of the keel to the top of the mast. So imagine a 24-story building. That's how high an aircraft carrier is. In terms of width, it's 252 feet wide. So just look at the sanctuary here. A scan from, from one wall over to the other. An aircraft carrier is about five times the width of our sanctuary. So you've got this picture, 24 stories high, five times the width of our sanctuary. In terms of length, aircraft carrier is 1,092 feet long. That's longer than three football fields. Okay? 24 stories, five sanctuaries, three football fields that way. Uh, in terms of weight, it weighs over 100,000 tons. I, I drive a Honda Civic, and I calculated that an aircraft carrier wears 73,000 Honda Civics. Okay. <laughs> it's big. We're getting, you know, it's big. Controlled by two rudders that are 29 feet tall and 22 feet long. Seems big till you realize over 200 million pounds of metal is controlled by something that weighs six one-hundredths of a percent of its weight. A very small thing that's disproportionately influential. If our sanctuary were a ship, look around, it would be controlled by something about the size of a laptop. When I asked this question, my friend said, I would note that the sanctuary dimensions would make a very fat ship. <laughs> Definitely not a sleep combatant. Noted, right? <laughs> What's the point? The point is, small things can be amazingly influential. And so it is with the tongue. This small thing has incredible, tremendous power for good. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life. The tongue has the power of life. And don't we know this to be true? Just experientially, forget the theory. Just think of your own experience. You know that you've been moved to greater compassion by the words of another person. You know that you've been encouraged to, to persevere by something that someone has said. You know that you've made it through times of crisis solely because someone gave you the word that you needed. In a small way, you know that there's been a smile on your face because someone has said a kind word. 
And you know this not just from the words of others, but from your own words as well. You know how a child's face will light up when you give them a compliment. You know how meaningful it is to a friend when you show up with that kind word. You know how you can give security to your spouse through the language that you use. We know that word has power. We know that we can speak words of encouragement. We know that we ought to be speaking words of life to others today. The tongue has tremendous power for good. Second reason, though, that the tongue is such a big deal comes to us in our third section. The tongue is a big deal, yes, because it has tremendous power for good, but also, verses 5 and 6, because it has tremendous power for harm. Our tongues have tremendous power for good, but tremendous power for harm. Again, the tongue is disproportionately influential. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me and see how this small thing boasts of great things, produces a world of unrighteousness, stains the whole body, destroys the entire course of life, ends up being destroyed by hell itself. The small thing with tremendous power for harm. And the illustration that we're given is in verse 5. See it there? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. One of the worst wildfires in U.S. history took place on October the 8th, 1871. I referred to as the Great Peshtigo Fire. It burned about 3.8 million acres. That's about 6,000 square miles across Wisconsin and Michigan. It killed up to 2,500 people. It's so hot that fire tornadoes formed, so hot that people who sought refuge in nearby rivers reportedly boiled to their death. How did this fire begin? Because loggers left their small campfire unattended. And from that small fire came 6,000 square miles of destruction. Interesting quirk of history, that very same day, October the 8th, 1871, was the day of the Great Chicago Fire. Consumed nearly four square miles of Chicago, killed hundreds, left hundreds of thousands homeless. It started in a small barn nearby. And from this one location spread destruction that wiped out such a significant portion of the city. What's the point? The point is that small things can be disproportionately influential. And so it is with the tongue for good, but so it also is with the tongue for bad. In Proverbs 18.21 that I quoted a moment ago, the tongue has the power of life, you remember the rest of the verse? And death. The tongue has the power of life and death. And again, don't we just know this to be true? Don't we just know this to be true experientially? We think of how the words of others have brought such harm to our own hearts or to our own souls. Perhaps words when we were a child and the parents said that harsh thing. Perhaps as we grew, the brutality of language on the playground. Perhaps as we grew yet more and loved ones, spouses, spoke words that didn't just bother us, didn't just upset us, but hurt us down to the level of our souls. And don't we wish, don't you wish, that we only knew this experientially because of things other people had said. But we know this from the things that we have said. You know that feeling. You know, you know that feeling when you say something and you just want to pull it back, stuff it back in. Because you know that the thing you just said 
that's disproportionately harsh and will do disproportionate harm to the hearer. We've all found ourselves in that situation. We've all experienced that the tongue has great power for harm. We've all wounded other people with our words. Maybe today we even have people to apologize to because of the ways in which we have used our tongues. The tongue is such a big deal because it has tremendous power for good and it has tremendous power for harm. Okay, well, what can we do about it? Let's look at sections four and five together. First of all, in section four, we see that things are going to get worse before they get better. And we're going to see that the tongue can't be tamed, verses 7 through 10. Our tongues are uncontrollable, our tongues are wild, our tongues are unruly, we are unable in and of ourselves uh, to shackle them. Our passage uses two illustrations to make this very clear. First of all, in verses 7 and 8, it says, we can tame animals, but we can't tame ourselves. Let's look at those verses. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's fascinating to me that the word that's used for tame here is only used one other time in the New Testament outside the book of James. And it's in Mark chapter 5, referring to that man who has so many unclean spirits within him. In a few moments, Jesus will drive these spirits out. They'll enter the pigs. The pigs will run down the hill and drown in the lake. It's this incredible, amazing scene. But at the very start of that passage, we read of this man who has these unclean spirits and has this kind of superhuman strength. So all around, fearful of him and the destruction that he brings, have tried to shackle him. And when they have, he has flexed and broken the shackles. And then they have tied him up with chains. And as soon as they do that and walk away, he has the the superhuman power to escape from them. And then in verse 4, we read that no one had the strength to subdue him. This term subdue. No one had the strength to tame him. And isn't this what our tongues are like? This wild, unruly uh, man with the unclean spirits and the superhuman strength. No matter what we do, put shackles on it, put chains around it, we cannot in and of ourselves prevent our tongues from uh, being the kind of restless evil, uh, being full of deadly poison. Uh, The illustration that's used is is almost a little humorous when he says uh, all kinds of animals can be tamed and indeed have been tamed. He's saying, you realize you can do lots of impressive things, but you can't do this small thing? You know, go to the circus. And you can see an elephant do a headstand. Right? Go to SeaWorld, you can see a whale breakdance. Yeah. Go to YouTube, and you can see a dog doing jump rope. Okay? How is it, people of MPC, how is it possible that we can train an elephant to do a headstand, a whale to breakdance, and a, job, a dog to jump rope, but we can't control the thing that's within us? It's this wild, unruly, unclean, power. Second illustration we get to show how we're unable to tame our tongues comes in verses 9 and 10. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So the second illustration, the second way you know that your tongue is untamable is that with this same tongue you praise your God and you curse people who are made in his image. 
And so you see how he's, he's driving the point home. We're moving away from illustrations that are out there to do with animals and interesting things in the world. And he's, he's driving it home to us as we sit here. And he's saying, understand how much of a horror it is that here we are at church on a fine Sunday morning. And with these very lips, we've been singing the praises of God. And how long will it be as you leave this sanctuary before you use those very same lips to say a harsh, judgmental, unkind word about one who is made in the image of the God you just praised? How is it possible that we could be so hypocritical? How is it possible that we could sin in this way? It's possible because we cannot tame our tongues. The tongue provides ongoing and unavoidable evidence of our sin. The tongue provides ongoing and unavoidable evidence of our inability to change ourselves. The tongue provides ongoing and unavoidable evidence of our need of grace. That's the reality of what is within us this morning. Tongue is a big deal. It has tremendous power for good, tremendous power for harm, and we can't tame it. What can we do? Section 5. We need to realize, verses 10 through 12, that the tongue reveals the condition of our hearts. The tongue reveals the condition of our hearts. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The passage describes it in two ways. In verse 11, it says, the kind of water that you get depends upon the spring. The kind of water that you have, be it fresh or salt, depends on the source of that water. It is the source that leads to uh, the water that you will have. Verse 12, he says, the kind of fruit that you have depends upon the kind of tree that you have. You know that a fig tree won't bear olives. If you have olives, you know you have an olive tree. The thing in the root is what uh, gives way to the fruit. And so the hard truth of our text is that our problem is much deeper than our lips. Our problem is much more significant than our words or our vocabulary. Our problem resides in our hearts. It's the challenging teaching of this text. Paul Tripp, pastor and author, says, word problems are heart problems. Great soundbite for the teaching of this text. Word problems are heart problems. He goes on to tell the story of being at a family gathering as a child, and he had an uncle who got very drunk, and his uncle started to say really inappropriate and sexually perverse things to some of the women that were in that room. When Paul Tripp's mother realized what was happening, she scooped up Paul and scooped up his brother and threw them in the car, and he says he feels like his feet didn't even touch the step on the way out. And there in the car, before they pulled off, he remembers his mother turning, looking over her shoulder and saying to him these powerful words, there's nothing that comes out of the mouth of a drunk that wasn't already there in the first place. There's nothing that comes out of the mouth of a drunk that wasn't already there in the first place. The alcohol didn't create sexual perversion. The alcohol just loosened the lips 
so that the sexual perversion of the heart came out. Or perhaps, I don't know, think of it this way. You can have a bottle of water and you can shake it and nothing happens. What will happen if I shake it now? Water comes out. <laughs> Why does water come out? You're probably asking yourself this very, what is he doing? Okay. <laughs> you say, well, because you took the lid off and you shook it. Well, sure, that's sort of true. But if there was coke in here, I could shake all day and water would never come out. The shaking just brings out what was already there to begin with. And so it is with our tongues revealing the problems of our hearts as they shake around in our heads. What was already there to begin with comes out of our mouths. And so we get this hard principle, this hard teaching that you've never spoken a word that didn't come from your heart. Never spoken a word that didn't come from your heart. You say, where's the hope? I thought we were getting some good news here. I thought we were driving this somewhere. <laughs> where's the hope? The hope, to me, comes in verse 10. We've said the tongue is a big deal. It's got tremendous power for good, tremendous power for harm. None of us can tame it, and it reveals to us the desperate condition of our hearts. The word of hope comes, though, in verse 10, where we read, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. Now I get excited about this, and I want you to get excited about this, because I want you to understand that these are not a word of rebuke. James is not saying, see, you've done it again. It really ought not to be like this. It's not a word of rebuke. It's a word, it's a word of remembrance. A word of remembrance. Calling us, directing us toward a spring that is pure and a tree that is healthy. The reason these things ought not be coming out of our mouth is because the inner heart change that is needed that we might have fresh water and healthy fruit has already taken place. In other words, what he's doing is he is pointing us to another word. Another word who is beyond definition and who is certainly beyond pronunciation and who transcends language because he is the word that is a person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then what? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. What is he full of? Remember this passage, full of grace and truth. And what do we receive from his fullness? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. James has in mind that word who passed the tongue assignment and who passed it for us. He has in mind that one who didn't complain or grumble, the one who never gossiped or spread a bad report, the one who took every word of judgment upon himself, the one who shifted all blame into his very body, the one who didn't boast of a cross but who died on a cross. He has in mind Jesus our Savior. Now remember, what does this word promise to those who have faith in him? A new heart. A new heart. And so that's why James is saying, these things ought not to be so. 
Because those who have faith in Jesus have received this new heart and should speak words that are consistent with it. No man can tame the tongue, but Jesus can tame the tongue because he changes the heart. Sermon in a sentence. Are you ready? Forget everything else. This is the only thing you need to remember. Okay? The heart that has experienced grace speaks words of grace. The heart that's experienced grace speaks words of grace. This passage is not a call to a technique. It's not a call to a set of tools. It's not a call to seven things you can do to make your language better. This passage is fundamentally a call to a person. And this is hard for me and it's hard for you because it reminds us that in spiritual formation and our growth in Christ, if we want to be people who have words that are gracious, seasoned with salt, there's just no shortcut. There's no shortcut to the formation of character. The route is solely through the cross. And so we come to Jesus at the beginning of the day and we say, Lord, your word says that. Where words are many, sin is not absent, and I'm going to speak a lot of words today. I need you to show up with grace like manna in my soul. And we come to him in that moment of temptation and we say, Lord, I need you every hour. And this hour. Right now. Show up. Give me the grace that I need. We come to him in repentance saying, Jesus, work grace in my heart to tame my tongue. The heart that experiences grace will speak words of grace. So come to him. Bring your word problems. Bring what's really your heart problems. And bring them with hope. And bring them with confidence. And bring them with joy. Because you are coming to the one who delights to give you grace upon grace. You are coming to the only word who can heal your heart and thereby tame your tongue. Come and just see if, as you taste of the grace that he offers, it doesn't just inevitably sweeten the words that you speak from your lips. Very few of us ever spoke an angry word with eyes on Christ. Very few of us ever boasted with eyes on Christ. Very few of us boasted, uh, grumbled or complained with eyes on Christ. With eyes on him, experiencing his grace, our words are changed. The heart that experiences grace will speak words of grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this section of your word that is at once so brutal and so healing. Um, It's so brutal because it doesn't let us excuse our sin. It doesn't let us say, oh, it's just the way we are. It confronts us with the reality of our brokenness. But we also thank you, Lord, for the words of grace that it speaks. Words that that show us a new way, a better way through the word who is Christ. Lord, what a vision this is for a Christian community. What a thought it is were we to become a place where the words and the language used in these rooms and in these halls and in these homes would be seasoned with salt. Lord, that's the kind of community we want to be. But to be that, Lord, we, we know that we need change from within. So give us that experience of grace, that we might speak words of grace to your honor and to your glory. Amen.